You don't have to agree with facts. That's why we're here. If COVID has taught us anything, it's that we don't have to agree with facts. <laughs> God, I, I, I shiver for the next actual crisis that comes along, like acute crisis. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. We're going to ignore it we're completely. Incredibly screwed. Yes. This I think that's legitimately for... how we're going to get taken over by China. Yeah. They're just going to walk in. They're just going to walk out of the ocean and onto the beach in California and be like, we're here now. And half the people are like, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> I read in a Facebook group that you're not really here. Welcome to the podcast where your hosts sample a different scotch each season while we dive into current social, political, and economic issues each episode. This is Scotch and Socialism. Well, welcome to this episode of Scotch and Socialism. Tonight, I am Jacob, your resident commie bastard for the evening. Of how it's tonight, you're Jacob, the resident. It's like other nights, you're not Jacob. Well, earlier this afternoon, he wasn't either. That's true. But he's and I am Russ, <laughs> your resident waffling politician. <laughs> I'm Griff, your resident... I don't even know anymore. <laughs> you guys have broken me. <laughs> and I'm Forrest. <laughs> he's our special guest. Forest. What are you a resident of, Forest? Special guesting. <laughs> Special guesting. Oh, God. oh, this is already off the rails. Well, tonight we wanted to get together to talk about a subject near and dear to at least several of our hearts. Near and dear being kind of a misnomer because we kind of hate it. But uh, We're also not near and dear at all. Yeah. Near, though. Well, you know how hate and the, the parts of the brain that hate and love are very close together. It's something similar like that, I think. Ah, I don't know that that's entirely scientifically accurate. If you're a scientist, let us know in the comments. If you're not, let us know in the comments. <laughs> yes. If you are not a scientist, let us know you're not a scientist <laughs> in, the in the comments. comments. <laughs> Tonight we're talking about American exceptionalism, nationalism, and our experiences thereupon. Um, Can you explain that as if I was a five-year-old? Sure. So... Uh, We've seen this topic kind of come up a lot, especially in more left-leaning liberal circles over the last, I would argue, four to five years, uh, but continuing going on prior. I feel like it's just really become in vogue as part of a conversation in the last, I don't know, four or five years. Being being what, what form does this conversation take? Being that American exceptionalism is this bad thing. And then there's also, also a lot of counterpoints that will be brought up as like, no, we're just teaching our kids to hate America. There's a lot of argument mm. to be going around here. Uh, and so the uh, the idea of American exceptionalism kind of just boils down to the idea that the U.S. is inherently different or better than other nations. Um, that America is destined and entitled to play a distinct and positive role on the world stage. So you get ideas like manifest destiny, which we can talk about a little bit later, um, and all sorts of other things, like arguably this idea that America is inherently better has influenced the way that we act not only within the United States, but on the world stage as well. So uh, before we kind of really get into potentially the meat of the subject tonight, what are your guys' experience with exceptionalism? Or do you have experience with American exceptionalism? I think we all have it. To some degree, 
just being in the country and being exposed to kind of the general cultural flavor. Yeah, but I guess the question would be is, is how, do we ever like really take account of that? A, a lot of the stuff, you know, I grew up not really realizing a lot of stuff was America first kind of stuff, but it, it just existed. You know, it's just normal, right. commonplace stuff. And I didn't realize that there was, you know, other ideas in the world until I actually started interfacing with other people out of country specifically. Right. I mean, the internet was an amazing thing. I, I learned so much from my friends over in Germany when I was like 15. Mm-hmm. That's why I think that international travel is so important. Oh, absolutely. Just in general. And that's a topic we can get into a different night. But I, I have family up here in the Pacific Northwest and in the deep South, the belly of the Bible belt. And it's interesting to see the differentiations and the expression of, you know, this varying shades, I think is probably the best way to explain it, of, you know, exceptionalism versus nationalism, patriotism. I was in the South um, about, about a month ago, and I noticed a distinct lack of overt patriotic symbols on cars, Bumper really? stickers, houses. Yeah, like you would think, okay, well, and, you know, this is kind of a stereotype to to address. You would think there would just be like Trump stickers and, you know, God bless America left and right. And there were a few people that had, you know, American flags on their cars, which is not necessarily, you know, even political. It shouldn't be. Um, and there were even, there were very few people with, you know, Confederate symbology, symbology, symbolism, symbols, whatever. Um, or the rhetorician. Symbology and symbolism are two different things. I want to make sure I get it right. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, very little overt sociopolitical um, insignia. And I thought that was really interesting because if you compare that to, you know, up here in eastern Washington, northern Idaho, you can't you can't swing a dead cat without hitting somebody with a Trump sticker, you know. Or a flag in the back or of their a flag, four by four. Yeah. Or back the blue. You know, saw stuff three like flags on a Honda Accord driving yes. to the airport. <laughs> what the were they? Day. Uh, it was the don't tread on me flag. I love it, it was the blue line flag, um, which is against the laws of the United States flag, but that's a different topic. No, it's and a then DIY was, pride uh, flag. <laughs> a few of those running around here too. Yeah. And then the other one was, um, I, I don't know, some Confederate battle flag, but not the traditional stars and bars on a Japanese car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love it. So God. they had to mount <laughs> bike, bike rack style mount three poles to the back of their Honda yes. Accord to fly these flags. It's honestly That's kind adorable. of impressive. Yeah. Yeah. That's adorable. It's just so <laughs> was there just ways. so much drag that the Honda was starting to pop a wheelie? Yeah. There's no way they got any sort of gas mileage. No. Oh, man. I see some of those trucks that have like three flags in the bed and I'm like, you just massive flags. And they're driving on the freeway and they're yep. here's like, you know, you're going to just shred those things, right? Mm-hmm. Do you not care? You don't care. Okay. You I, don't I care. didn't think so. Uh, it's about the symbol. Yeah. Not what, the, what it stands for. Yeah. Rhetoric. But it's often, not always, but often the same folks who would be tremendously angry for somebody quote unquote, defacing the flag, stepping oh, sure. on something, whatever, where they're literally beating the shit out of, yeah, flag. but they're beating the shit out of it for America. Sure. I mean. Yeah, because, I mean, even <laughs> even in United States flag code, it says that if winds exceed, you know, 45 miles an hour, you have to bring the flag in because it's not safe and they're driving 70 miles an hour down the freeway with it. This is true. Mm-hmm. Well, does it count if the flag itself is moving or? 
if the stand physics. on which physics the they're both moving yes. <laughs> physics. hey yeah physics lesson for the night technically the flag is flying 70 miles an hour backwards i love the ones that have american flags upside down because oh, we're in hoisted upside down it's like are we actually in, in distress yeah. or are you performing in distress i think the latter i always just wonder if it's p- people who like um just didn't pay attention Completely <laughs> they possible. They just hoisted the flag and then oh, are driving The most trouble I ever got into in ROTC was I assigned someone to put the flag up at school and they put it up upside down. And before I got there, Ooh. first sergeant got there. Ooh, that's a bad day. Yeah, I've never been yelled at more in my life. Uh-huh. And I've never subsequently yelled at someone more in my life. Absolutely. So. Love the chain of command. Just chain, chain of right screaming. The chain yeah. of screaming. The chain of command is the chain <laughs> they chain beat you screaming. with until you learn who's in command. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, enough. and that's kind of the fun thing. So I, I came from a very small town, as we've talked about in our previous, you know, podcast uh, population. I think I just went through there the other day. It was like three hundred and fifteen. It was. It's oh, huge. so it's increased. It's like doubled since yeah. I was there. Wow, uh, growth. It's amazing. But because of that, we, the only flags that we had ever seen were at the school, into the classrooms. There was always a flag. Um, there was one on the football field as well, and it was always, you know, properly maintained. I assume I never knew that there were regulations and rules mm-hmm. in regards to flags. Right. Um, I actually learned about those when I moved up here and became a homeowner. And one of my my neighbors, um, there was a flagpole on this house before I moved in, and I moved in and I said, "Oh, cool flagpole! I would love to throw a flag up. Mm-hmm. Why not? Right?" And uh, apparently, one of the neighbors felt the need to educate me well before I even attempted to put a flag up, which I'm kind of happy they did. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have done it a little less condescendingly. But um, learned all sorts of fun stuff, like can't fly it at night without, you know, a light. Mm-hmm. Have to take it down and winds, you know, stronger than 45 miles per hour. All kinds of fun stuff. And I went, you know, I'm good. I don't need to show my level of patron, you know. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, it exists, but I don't care that much. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, all right, cool. Yeah, I live in America. Yay. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, I have friends that have come down to America from, like, Canada. And they're like, my God, there's flags everywhere. And I I'm think like, we're one of the few, I don't want to say first world countries, but we're one of the few kind of it's developed. Western, yeah, Western developed countries where, like, overt public displays of patriotism and insignia. Yeah. Well, are, well Europe is so afraid of it now. Yeah, which so given the history, I would be <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> well, and, and it, I think I think it goes beyond that even because you know the the idiom of oh, "we're proud to be American," like the notion of pride in something that is inherent, not in something that is earned, mm-hmm. is foreign to a lot of countries. It's like sure. mm-hmm. I'm fortunate to be blank, yep. proud, uh, you know. But here, and I don't know, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. By itself, I think obviously, like a lot of other things, it can be taken too far to the point of well, it's always extremist. Right? Exactly, to the point of, of being problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I used to be a whole lot more, I don't say anti-American, but just very um, Amero skeptic. Sure, we say now. I still think you know that that there should be healthy skepticism around the politics and the social construct of your country, but I you know I don't I don't see. I don't see being an American citizen and taking advantage of the privileges that affords, not at the expense of others, as an inherently problematic thing anymore. I probably did when I was young and full of piss and vinegar. I, I, I still have reservations about that because I think people take that and automatically assume that 
that makes them worth more or better. Mm-hmm. In what way? Well, the 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 pride in uh, I was born in the United States. Has, I've seen um, empowered a lot of people mm-hmm. um, to take extreme advantage of that. And I think having pride in it means that um, I, I, you're, you're holding yourself higher because of that. Right. Sure. And so and I agree. And that can be exploded to problematic levels, but I think you could write that onto any trait into which or with which we are born like we're, we're all straight white guys in this room. Okay. There's nothing inherently problematic with any of that. Now, if we go hard in the direction of, you know, Oh, we're, you know, misogynistic or blank phobic. Okay. That becomes a problem because it's, it's inflicting that upon other people or potentially inflicting that upon other people. But I don't think there's a problem with saying, you know, this is how I've come to exist I'm fine with this. I understand that there can be areas of problematic kind of meaning in there, but at the same time, you also have the opportunity to dispel some of those stereotypes as well. Mm-hmm. Should you choose to? Well, I think that's part of the problem. It's less that, you know, I, I happen to be this way and more of you have to look at me because I am this way. Exactly. You know, that's where that line I think kind of resides. Right. And, and right. to me that line is, is pride. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because I wouldn't say that I am proud that I'm white or that I'm American or that I'm, you know, a heterosexual. I wouldn't say that I, yeah, I I mean, I would, I would express that those are the conditions that I exist in Mm -hmm. and I will act out of those things as in finding a wife and, you know, I am not, and finding a job in America, but I don't, I don't think I should have pride in those things because that's when I think that they have more intrinsic value than any of the other conditions to exist in. Absolutely. Right. And it's, I think that it's kind of interesting looking, looking at the juxtaposition that we have of like, you know, we're, we're Americans. We have the whole revolution and all of this sort of stuff of like, we're automatically though. We won't necessarily say it though. A lot of people will, um, viewing ourselves better than, uh, where our country came out of being, you know, Britain effectively. Well, I think it's because we have this notion that all forward movement is inherently good. Well, there's chronological hubris. Yeah, there's that for sure. That's a CS Lewis Um, term. You're welcome. I love it. it. Uh, But the same ideas of like all of these, we, we look back on European history often and we look at all of what we would call petty squabbles between all of these different countries. Oh, you mean like the hundred years war? (laughs) Right. But, you know, all of all to me, it seems very weird that so much of the fighting and strife came out of these ideas of nationalism. And often Americans, in my experience, granted, very small experience, seem to also kind of have that sort of like looking down like we're so much better than them. Part of because we've not been, quote unquote, involved in those types of petty squabbles. We can get into it. We've been involved in some squabbles. Yeah. Um, but it's but all of those, not all of them, a lot of them were born out of the same idea of you know, my country, my mound of dirt is better than yours. And that makes me better than you. I'm going to, I, I, I like what you're saying and I'm going to take it a step further. We mm. also hyper-focus on half truths that make yeah. us be better. Like, like this is being better. Like yeah. the fact that we won the American revolution against the old countries mm-hmm. is not true. France beat England 
and we were there. Yeah, we benefited <laughs> from that. Yeah. And we used Span's Navy to get the French here to do it. And I, and then we look at Europe and we're like, Psh, we took you guys out. We must be the best thing ever. It's like, no, we, we, we very intelligently played Europe against itself mm-hmm. and won the the fight that we started between the countries and so i think we're taught from a very young age that america a ragtag group of a hundred people took up arms against the largest country and the largest army and the largest navy in the world and won and subsequently started a chain of revolutions that destroyed the largest land empire that's ever existed when none of that is actually true right it's we have a wonderful way of twisting spinning a yarn oh yeah i'll call it that yeah, we had a lovely discussion about that on one of our previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. <laughs> about who writes history. About who writes history yeah. and oh we'll just glaze over a few things. We don't we don't okay. need to detail all the We details. don't need you, we, like, we won. That's the important part. Do you guys learn about the Mexican American War in Washington State schools? I don't Not remember really. picking up on it. There might have been half a history period in the I've, US history that I had. I think I remember hearing about it in college. My college history classes were much more just better all around than my high school history class. So I was taught in Texas public education that we went to war with Mexico, which was also a, a bigger army than us. And we won and we won at the battle of the Alamo because people um, were more proud to be an American than the Mexicans were proud to be Mexican. The problem is we lost the Alamo and all of those people died and it took a different battle in a different area with U.S. funding <laughs> to beat the Mexican army. It's almost like wars are won through mostly dumb luck. Yeah, and <laughs> other people's money. Yes. yes. Like Always. I said. Yeah, financing your own war is expensive and long-running and not usually a great idea. Financing your war through someone else's capital is a great way of doing things. Proxy mm-hmm. wars. Wow. Well, and I wanted to get into some of the topics of like where, where does this idea of exceptionalism come from? Because even growing up in, sure. Um, And there's your episode. uh, (laughs) Digging a little bit deeper. Uh, Growing up, you know, Washington, it's it's funny, like, after living in other states, um, everybody has viewed Washington as, like, this mecca of political leftness our washington yes oh, mm-hmm. really? um yes tremendously so now that's what i was told living here in Spokane, living here i have no idea you would have no idea right and it's the <laughs> same sort of thing like we often especially in the redder parts of washington will hear about oh those damn californians they're democrats blah 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 there's like three cities three cities out of all of california that are democrat more than that i'm being hyperbolic four uh yeah it's <laughs> four it's, and a half now, large population centers, sure, huge population centers, actually, yeah. um, which, you know, there there tends to be a left-leaning populace in large population centers. But even in super left-leaning Washington, okay, so center-right Spokane, I would guess, I would say, mm. as far as our education system goes. No? I, I don't know about the education. Um, as far as my, exp- let me put it this way, as far as my experience in the education system goes, there was a lot of just this whole idea of how amazing America is. And I want to get probably towards the end of this episode of like, how do we actually balance that? But some of the things that uh, I was brought up in, in both education and I'll call it my religious education, uh, were things like lack of feudalism is kind of what was brought up, which was touched on very little. It's 
it's a dumb argument because lack of we, feudalism. Yeah, like we didn't have all of these big aristocrats at owning all of the things and taking away your lands and all that. Really. That's exactly <laughs> my expression. That's still you, going on. It's still going on today by a different South name. After the Civil War. Yeah. Or the Gilded Age. Yeah. Sharecropping. So there's, but again, it's kind of that spinning, spinning of yarn, twisting of history to make it, make us look like the better people. Honestly, most of my understanding of America's exceptionalism growing up was definitely based off of our quote unquote religious founding. Interesting. Oh, absolutely. We are God's country, don't you know? It's the new divine right of kings. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I got none of that growing up. Really? I yeah. don't remember what I got growing up, honestly. My dad was a history major. I feel like you're cheating with that. Was I? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, there were a lot of history books in my house back in the day. Yeah, we, we, we were podunk farmers in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. We did the Pledge of Allegiance when I was in grade school. We stopped by high school, and that was the last I had ever heard of patriotism. So, you know, here's <laughs> something that gets so interesting, and Jake, Jake and I are from the same town, different parts of the same town. I don't remember. I, I, I remember bits and pieces of high school, especially, you know, the social studies types courses. I don't remember presence of, of any, I was of any real kind of agenda, I guess it's probably a clumsy way to say it. I don't even remember that much, you know, patriotism being overtly performed or displayed amongst the populace of the high school. You know, there were always some kids that, you know, oh, America, they're probably really? going to JROTC. Fair, fair. But, uh-huh. and it might've been because, you know, it was a bigger school that had, and sh- the school I went to was fairly diverse as a school in Spokane can be. Which is, mine was not. Right. I well, mine was not either. My school, again, it's small. The high school, I, the high school I graduated from did all four years there, like 1500 students. And they came from a lot of different backgrounds. We mm-hmm. had, very wealthy students and some more impoverished students, decent amount of minority and people and students of color. So it was a pretty good kind of blend. And I don't remember there being, you know, around like certain tragic events. Yeah. But that's, I mean, we just kind of do that reflexively. Mm-hmm. Nothing that was really pervasive and, and, and sustained. Yeah. And I, it's, it's weird that even within districts, you'll see that there's a decent amount of difference. It's honestly, I think a lot based on which teacher happens to be teaching, et cetera. That's true. Um, we, you're right in the education side of things, aside from what you know, growing up still seemed very just normal, but then traveling outside of the States or even looking at, you know, what other schools do outside of the States for their own country. So it was like the pledge of allegiance. That's a little culty and I'll probably get put on blast for saying that, but no, I'll agree. No, it's not, <laughs> not within this room. I don't think, but, <laughs> um, depending on your upbringing. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's drop heretic in the comments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like that's to, to have kids, five-year-olds, sit up, or stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. When I was in first and second grade, we, there was a whole song we had to do, too. It was very odd. Looking back on it now, very ironic, because I went to... My, my dad was teaching out there, and so he would take me out there. Um, I went to school on a reservation. Oh, interesting. Very ironic that we're talking about land of the free, and this land is your land and my land. But mostly my land. But mostly my, my land, yeah. And there's that level of subtlety. 
but I think most of my my understanding and my primary indoctrination of American exceptionalism definitely came from the religious side of things. That doesn't surprise me in the least. No, not at all. And I came from a relatively, certainly for Spokane, a relatively kind of easygoing church based on that. Um, there was, from the church, like pastors and stuff, leadership, the, aside from Veterans Day, a few other things, there really wasn't a whole lot mentioned. But as, when it came to the like parent leaders within kids' church and the youth leadership, oh, Wow. Like, so looking really? back on it, oh, tremendously so. Interesting. My church was, um, okay, so I went to a very progressive Lutheran church mm-hmm. when I was young. And I so you're have the commie been bastard. to slash go to a very progressive Presbyterian church, <laughs> so really not that much different. It was not, pervade. I mean, there were, you know, around 4th of July, the prayers would be, you know, we would have a prayer for the, the nation's mm-hmm. leaders, generic. Really? Yeah. We pray we pray for the nation's leaders for wisdom and guide, whatever, which yeah. is very biblical. generic. Yeah. yeah. Very, very sure. na- apolitical. I don't recall ever hearing a sermon that was like political. There was very socially conscious sermons as there should be, sure. but it was never like, okay, pastors told me to vote for blank. You know, it was interesting, which I yeah. definitely had. Really? Um, yeah, after it wasn't so much the church that I grew up in, there was there was hints of it, I would argue, but more again from like the volunteer leadership as opposed to the pastors. Um, the next church that I joined and worked in for a long time, still love it to this day, but there were a couple of times where I was like, I, I don't even want to be sitting here in the service because of this. And it wasn't so, so much at a national level as like we would have the occasional person running for like some sort of state representative. Um, you know who I'm talking I about. I do, yeah. Uh, we won't mention names. But it was a lot of like, we've got to pray that he gets in so he straightens out the Washington government and all of these sorts of things. And this particular fellow was very, very right-leaning. Um, and also he, running for treasurer or something. So very gosh, low. So did he happen to run for the 4th Legislative District? I can't remember off the top of my head. After the end of the podcast, I'll I'll give you the name. We'll talk about it on our Patreon um, page. Yeah, <laughs> Patreon, which we don't have, which we don't have yet. Yet, um, but yeah, it was going going back to the idea of exceptionalism. Like I hit it here and there at a moderate level while I lived in Spokane, and then something happened with twenty twenty. I mean, everything happened with twenty twenty, where in the churches that I was observing and the church that I had been working in, it shot off the roof. Um, BLM uh, was part of it and it was wrapped up because um, it was wrapped up with the 1619 project, Mm. which made a couple of claims that effectively called out the history of slavery in the United States and how that Things weren't as rosy as the pilgrims hitting Plymouth Rock and spreading the word of God everywhere because they wanted religious freedom. They had religious freedom in Britain. They wanted the freedom to persecute people using their religion in England. Yes. And, yeah. And so it was just like suddenly, and we we see it now in not just churches, but pushes big pushes in education you'll hear a lot about like we can't be teaching our kids to hate america which turns itself into this idea of exceptionalism where america can literally do no wrong 
We cannot teach our kids that there was horrid, horrid genocide that happened at the founding of our country. I briefly mentioned the idea of manifest destiny. Um, for those of you that don't know, manifest destiny was this thing back in the 18th century, primarily. It might have been in the in seventh. Excuse me, 19th century. Yeah, 18th and 19th. Might have been eight, more in the 18th as well. It's the idea that the uh, expansion during that time into the West was justified and inevitable. And by God, yeah, divinely or uh, ordained. And that manifest destiny gave those settlers uh, or whoever carte blanche to do whatever they wanted, including murdering massive amounts of people. And it became institutionalized. You know, if you we want the some trail white of tears. Reading, look up the Trail of Tears. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. And so, but again, it's like, even not necessarily saying it didn't happen, but how much did that get taught on in y'all schools? Not a lot. I took, I took advanced history classes, so we talked about it a little bit. But until college, again, mm-hmm. not really a thing. And, yeah. only, and only then, probably because I have very academic, very progressive parents. So they did not shy away from, I mean, my dad has, my dad has a book. It's um, the people's history of America. I think it's by Howard Zinn. He also did a graphic novel called people's history of American empire, which if you want your notions about American exceptionalism completely shattered, you should absolutely read that graphic novel. It's great. Sorry. Go ahead. Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> Hashtag not sponsored. I would love to have Howard Zinn on the show. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I hope he's alive. <laughs> It's okay. I thought Reagan might have been still alive earlier tonight. I would love so. to have him on the show too. <laughs> wow. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been a long time. It took a it took me a long time to just understand. And I was already at the point of like, like Griff said earlier in the podcast. Like I, I'm happy to be here in America. I'm very fortunate to fortunate. be here in America in the position that I'm in. You know, Socio economically, right? yeah, it's. It, that's it. But uh, to to claim pride in that um, had never quite sat well with me. I didn't realize that was an option. It, it, that, that was right. the thing. Is like it, I, I some people take it way beyond right. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I was saying earlier, I didn't even realize that America was a thing to be proud of until I started talking to people outside of it. Like, oh, you're from America. That's so cool. It's like, is, is it? it? <laughs> like I, I don't I've never known anything else. Well, it's just it, right? And you know, I didn't get a good perspective of what America was until I basically started talking to people outside America, because internally we don't know what's going on half the time. <laughs> um, I love watching the BBC for news articles about America. Oh yeah, they are amazing. Yeah, and they're pretty unbiased. Well, they don't care because the UK doesn't have a horse in that race. Exactly. Deutsche Welle is pretty good for that too, if you can understand Absolutely. German. <laughs> Yeah, but Jake, you mentioned something earlier. Where did where did this come from? I mean, we kind of talked about in the history, but from historical perspective, I should say. But from like a cultural psychology perspective, you know, real nebulous stuff, right? I I I think it comes from an inherently human, and in this case, more specifically, American unwillingness to confront honest honest truths about the self. You know, and so in a way, kind of in denial, you know, because if oh, if we admit that, yeah, we weren't the nicest people in the world, that puts a major dent in American exceptionalism for one. And two, it paints us as not the permanent, quote unquote, good guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's 
kind of where I keep landing on. I'm curious to see y'all's thoughts as well. I I think we keep running against this wall of, you know, some atrocious thing happened and we immediately say, I say we, um, typically white cis, I'll argue, because that's where I'm my perspective is from. Um, well, that was however many years ago. We other so I very easily. Yeah. I I didn't do that. Why should I have to care? Sort of thing. So there's that argument or the fallback argument, well, it wasn't bad or it didn't happen. Um, slavery is a is a big one that I've heard of like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Or my favorite <laughs> favorite being put in massive air quotes and me having to bite back some bile. Well, the slave owners taught taught the slaves about Jesus. Oh uh, yes, religion seems like a fair trade. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, in in Bibles that excluded a lot, including the Book of Exodus. Yeah, something, something. Slaves I, leaving there. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. Yeah, slave answers. Bibles just didn't have the entire Book of Exodus. <sighs> Darn, that doesn't surprise me. No, no and it should actually. It surprises me that they were that forward thinking. True. To edit, else. to yeah. edit the Bible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, someone well, I realized. Mean, <laughs> a lot of their justification was founded in false uh, theories on creation and their place in the cosmic universe, in the spiritual universe. Like, well, since we can read and write, we must be better than them. They must be a savages. lesser, yeah, mm-hmm. savages. And so we're here to educate them. And I and I think that our exceptionalism comes from the attitude that Europeans had when they first came over here, Cortez was very much Spanish exceptionalism. Oh yeah. I am here in the name of God. And if you are against me, that means death to you. And so we, that tradition carried on to the English that landed at Plymouth rock and, and all along the coast. And it morphed into American exceptionalism when we won the revolutionary war and we realized that we could possibly be better than the British. I think it also got a boost after probably World War II. Absolutely. Because oh, we were the only real remaining international superpower mm-hmm. that wasn't either in ruins or in financial ruin. Right. And so... Well, we tried, though. My God, we tried. Yeah. Well, and so pretty much the entire Western world and a lot of the Eastern world kind of, you know, we were the global leader. Yeah, we won. And we're still... We're still Getting high off that, I think. Oh, yeah. We're still trying to maintain that high mm-hmm. for for, uh, for as long as we can. Well, and that's what and that's what you know. A lot of this, you know, and it's it doesn't necessarily fall to one party or the other. Kind of, well, maybe it does. This kind of, you know, going back to this rose-colored vision of the past, like oh, we're gonna take America back, you know, make it great again. All of these things imply that there was a point in the yeah. past in which we were at a pinnacle that we have since descended from now and thus we can you know reclaim Re-obtain. whatever that is but that's yeah. i mean that's the grossest misadvertisement you could possibly have you know and it's mm-hmm. in some ways i mean it's generational bootlicking well i think that, that that's term. a great way to describe right it, it is exactly an advertisement it's marketing yeah it, it, well, it's a great it's, soundbite it's a great soundbite it's fantastic well it, it's it's been terrible we need to get better yeah, you know. it's it plays into that fear of loss. Absolutely, uh, which is arguably what has been driving mm-hmm. political advertisement for ever. I think is it certainly as long as for I've a been long alive. time. Well, it's because the future's uncertain, 
in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And we can look back at our history and cherry pick the pieces that we liked, you know? Oh, yeah. let's make it great again. Yeah, for the leave it to beaver. Exactly. Crowd. And that's that's the thing is like the idea often that, uh, you know, America was great in whatever decade. Um, usually that decade that I hear about is... I don't know, 50s or 50s, 60s. Post-war. 50s, post-war. Yeah. America was in a boom, but it was a boom for, again, whites. And, um, and white men. and Because women lost their jobs in that era right. and were forced back into kitchens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a boom for white adult men. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's very, very easy to say that. I remember uh, yeah, I was talking with somebody in, a church up here and she she's i think at that point was in her late 50s i want to say early 60s and she just said oh yeah i just you know back when i was your age in church i was younger back then um this was probably eight years ago um well we just didn't have all of these these problems and kids behave themselves and adults behave themselves and all those things i was like oh no, they didn't. <laughs> they did it behind maybe more closed doors. They just didn't tell you. They didn't have well, TikTok, it, so they didn't publish it. Well, there's right. no publishing of it. There's also the social contract of the world that no one acknowledged it. Right. It was just done in secret, and yeah. not even that deep of a secret, no. honestly. For but it was just like, oh, that's just Bill. We don't talk about Bill. But yeah, and again, it was or it very was much that, that you can't express that you love each other because oh, that's showing so weakness. Right. Here's here's an unpopular opinion. I do not personally hold this opinion, but I would like to. Thought experiment, if you would, could we, could we float the notion that yes, going quote unquote back would be preferable, even though it would require sacrifice from a lot of people, because even though there were a lot of unexplored, unpublished social ills, they were buried enough to the point where we did have you know, a lot of social cohesion and a lot of forward social velocity. So yes, people of color, women, gay people were subjugated in a lot of ways, but the culture as a whole, we could argue that was when we were the leaders of the world, right? We were ostensibly the leaders of the world. So would it be the greater good, even if, would it be, would it ultimately prove to be a greater good, even if it meant that certain marginalized communities just had to shut up and take it? I I think a past greater good that you could go back to, that the least amount of people would quote unquote have to shut up and take it, would be during the war. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like besides the 19 year olds dying and besides the fact that you didn't have any freedom of you know, sexual expression, you do Mm -hmm. have African-American soldiers serving next to white soldiers. You do have women holding jobs, not just taking care of the kids at home. And like, it's pretty equivalent across the board. 1944 to 1945, I think you could say would be the best time to go back and just make, you know, that would, we don't mind just sending tons of people to their death. And the the Holocaust and the Holocaust. But we didn't mind the Holocaust while it was happening. No, not until, you know, that's yet another thing. Uh, I think I think we'll do this after the scotch break, but you know, a lot of history has been overridden with American exceptionalism. Oh, absolutely. Hence, we, it, we, the Holocaust. We, we did not go into the war for the <laughs> no, Holocaust to save the Jews. It was convenient. It was it like, was. yeah, we'll pick up that win. Effectively, it was, a, it was a PR stunt because we were losing too much money in the West. 
Well, it's just yeah. like our current wars today, right? I mean, the Afghanistan thing. Um, yeah. You know, why were we there? Well, we were there to build a society. No, well, we weren't. Well, like, and, really? and before that, I will argue we were there to build a society the first time oh, yeah. in the 80s when we made the Taliban. We Absolutely. were there yeah. to when, fight the commies when, and establish. When we gave the Mujahideens financial yeah. support. Yep. I watched when the Rambo. Taliban sat in the Oval Office yep. and we promised to give them guns and money. We actually cared about their society because the because communists it didn't. In, it was in, yeah, it was in contrast to the communists. Yeah. We also didn't want their society. We wanted See, our we, society we can, established You can over flip there. that on its head, though, with all the crap that happened in Central and South America. In the Absolutely. 80s, where we destabilized all of these, you know, smaller yes. nations because. Well, we didn't like it. Well, that communism is <laughs> going to get a foothold in yeah. Nicaragua. Newsflash. No one cared about Nicaragua back then, okay? Yeah. And a number of other reasons why we were there. But on that depressing note, I think it's time for a scotch. We're going to need it. This is your regularly scheduled scotch break. So tonight on our scotch break, I wanted to talk about a little bit more of the history. Scotch has a lot of interesting stories attached to it. And the story of Miss Jessie, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Colquhoun. Did I have wow. enough? Did I have enough? Colquhoun or something? Colquhoun. <laughs> Jessie Cullen. She's a vampire. Um, <laughs> Jessie Colquhoun. Colquhoun. I don't know. Just stop of trying. Angus. <laughs> Do you want to try? Angus. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Aren't you Irish? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you know? Yeah. The I, hell. Get the hell out of here. Are you remotely Scottish? I More am. Scottish than you. Are you sure? Fairly certain. I took a 23 and me test. I'm like oh, 80%. So the Mormons told you you're Scottish. Yes. Oh, okay. There's a castle McEwen in Scotland next to Edinburgh. See, I believe that. That's because it's Googleable. It's because it's Googleable. <laughs> Jake, your last name is Schwartz. That's as German as it gets. Well, yeah, but I'm not... It's not like my family tree is a family Hang on. stick. Hang on. Have we talked about this, though, that your last name is basically black in German, so you're Jacob Black, which is the second Twilight reference we've had? <laughs> should have a different bell for that. <laughs> we really should. Jeez. It has to tinkle, though. A, t- a tinkle bell? A tinkle bell. Oh Anyways. <laughs> what? what the... F- <laughs> You leave the conversation for 30 seconds or us and all hell breaks loose. Yep. We were talking about Scottish <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah. Yes. And we continue to. And then the Scots uh, took a hold. <laughs> so back before is certainly, you know, cars and things, uh, funerals, especially Pretty in Scotland. back. Like a hundred years or so. It's fine. I don't know. With Scotland, when did they get their first car? I don't even know. I would imagine the early 1900s, probably. Like really early. Yeah, probably. Anyways, so back. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to cut so much of it. Uh, back before cars were a thing in Scotland, certainly before they were mainstream, part of a funeral uh, funeral would be the procession where you would carry the dead person, the corpse. We'll call it a corpse because that sounds morbid. Kind of up to the kirk. The what? Kirk. K-R-K. Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Would you stop questioning me? I. Sure. <laughs> you, you've never been this factual before. We're a little concerned. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and 
along the way, people would share stories and have a dram of scotch. So it's a moving wake. It is. And the story of Miss Jessie Colquhoun, Colquhoun of Angus is no exception. We don't know why Jessie left the world of the morals, uh, but the entire community had gathered to finish the last rites. So men shouldered her coffin. They were led by her brother to the churchyard or kirkyard, depending on what article you're reading. And they continued to go on and they amassed quite the procession. Apparently, Jesse was well loved. And so the brother eventually gets to the church. This is hours after they've started a little tipsy and as basically, hey, sorry for showing up late, like hours late. And the gravedigger, old Tom, spelled A-U-L-D. That's um, the only name for a Scottish gravedigger. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Uh, I ain't saying she a gravedigger. But her name's Old Tom. <laughs> yep. So Old Tom takes a look and realizes there's uh, no body. The brother was just kind of walking ahead, apparently, and kind of forgot about his sister. The entire procession of a hundred people did not notice that they accidentally left the body in an inn. That's going to be a bad surprise for housekeeping. A little bit. Turns out, town got a little bit drunk. As you do. And thus... Miss Jessie Colquhoun of Angus was late to her own funeral. In other news. <laughs> That's how I want to go out. If people aren't drunk to the point of forgetting where my body's at at the funeral. <gasps> hide the body. I think that's illegal. That Is it? sounds like it would be illegal these days. I don't like think there so. would be fines. Nothing's illegal with enough money. There would be that's fines. That's true, and that could be a whole other episode. The American totally. justice system would be an awesome episode. Oh, uh, we should not have, mm, <laughs> we'll need we more could scotch. have my dad on for that one. He's a lawyer. Ish was was a lawyer. Was a lawyer. Was a lawyer. <laughs> so speaking of history, this <laughs> segue. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the consequences of kind of this idea of American exceptionalism. We talked a little bit, certainly about World War II. Um, this idea that you know, I was I was taught certainly through grade school all the way through high school that we entered World War II specifically to save people from the Holocaust. No. 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 Didn't happen. Like I was three years apart, actually. Yeah. It, Hitler offered to send all of the Jews to the United States and FDR said no. Wow, that's <laughs> also bad. all the anti Semitism here. <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah, the, the the whole idea that America entered this war because we're so great and magnanimous to care about this group of people. We're the shining knights. The we world. have to to help everyone. Right. Is America the world police. Yeah. Which <sighs> is yet another consequence of American exceptionalism, I think. We've That's become true. we have ordained ourselves, really. Oh yeah. We're the, the world, world police. Man. police. We're, so here's we're the, the worst. Us. We are the worst world police ever then. Yes. Have hold on, hold on, hold on. Time out. <laughs> I I But we're not even fighting anywhere where black people are. No. Like we're not anything like our police. No, no we, we hear about oil and just kind of show up. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean there was at one point just remember um one of the trump talking heads i can't remember her name not conway um was on fox and friends or something like that and complaining about how um japan was hosting the olympics and how how could the u.s show up when there's a genocide going on in japan she was talking about the uyghur muslims which is in china china Mm -hmm. on the bright side first time i've ever heard one of those pundits care about muslims 
But anyways, <laughs> only when it's useful. But I'm, so I want to go back to just a, just a second here. Sure. For us talking about you know oh, we're you know we've ordained ourselves. You Jake, you said we have ordained ourselves as the world police force. You said we're horribly inept at it. Um, I want to play devil's advocate. Please. Who would you rather have as the world police? Ooh, and we, need to ha- we need to have game show music for this one. And why are we, what what metric are we using to measure ourselves to the result that we are horribly inept at it? So I would say that the United States is the only country, maybe. Be careful maybe saying only country. No, no, only country with the military complex large enough. Have you heard of theoretically. China? Have that's you met was, China? <laughs> that's what I was they would be the only other countries is, is that Russia I'm aware still a thing? of that would have. Yeah. Yes, yes, they have nukes. I mean, Russia oh. has uh, Russia has imperialist ambitions, but only really in a couple of very cold countries yeah. near them. Specifically, and Ukraine. Specifically, logistically speaking, I would argue, yeah, two countries, either the U.S. or China, have the capability, not necessarily the right, nor should they, of being the world police. So, if we're talking so, about police and more. Should term. should there be this notion of world police? Period. I mean, you have Interpol, but that's not really world hang police. On, hang on. After World War One, we tried to establish the world police in the League of Nations to make sure it didn't happen again. After World War Two, we reformed that into United Nations, which is supposed to provide aid and stop genocide using the contribute. Uh, the contributions militarily and financially of the seven largest nations in the on the world, right? So you have the the Security Council being the United States, the U.S. or the U.K., Russia, China, and Germany. I think is the fifth one. Oh, I don't know. Look the, this up. the fifth one is weird. So we've established a world police, and they operate under the Geneva Convention, which is what you can do to your citizens and other people's citizens. We have it. It exists, and it and it tries to work. Mm-hmm. At the end of the Rwanda situation, the UN did show up, and it was a task force made of the United States and Pakistan, and it did a lot better than we did when we sent in the United States military on its own. The only reason the United States was allowed to intervene in the Persian Gulf the first time was because the UN said that the United States should be its acting force. And so the United States has acted as the long arm of the law for the UN before, and there is a legal precedent to do such. We were able to invade Iraq the second time because that UN resolution continued on and Saddam Hussein did the same stuff, which allowed the United States to act again under the same UN ordinance and go back into Iraq, which is why Bush was not a war criminal. Fight me in the comments. <laughs> so we there Yay. is a world police. Yay, technicalities. Right. It should be working. <laughs> But there are countless genocides going on right now in countries that Americans couldn't pinpoint on a map or pronounce correctly. And we think that we're world police because we've gone into two countries for 20 years that we had no right to be in in the first place. Yes. I thought you just said that's my right. Because the UN. Can can I borrow that soapbox? Afghanistan and Pakistan are not Ah. part of that UN resolution. No, that's fantastic. I love that. No, the thing is, like, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to world politics for the most part. And. Everything that I hear in the news, everything I hear in the media, it's always, oh, well, America is fixing the problems, mm-hmm. right? And it, it is absolutely correct. You know, the UN is sanctioning some of this, which is good. But I also feel like the UN is a very large bureaucratic nightmare that just exists exists 
for the sake of existing to say that it exists and things don't really get done. They have done certain good things. Sure, absolutely. And it's yeah. not that they haven't. You know, yeah. very good Arguably I things like NSF do well. Yeah, yeah and, and they have sent a lot of aid to developing African nations. They've done it poorly and mismanaged <laughs> it, but the heart was there. Um, they handled the first Ebola outbreak very well by sending mm-hmm. doctors down there. Um, they've alleviated some stuff when like um, tsunamis will hit Indonesia and in, in India. I, I think that they do a bad job when the military needs to get involved. I think one of the best modern cases of that is Sudan. I mean, you have people on camels with AK-47s burning villages and raping women, which the United States military or China or Russia could have handled in a two-week time period with the UN's blessing. But since there was no like political capital to be gained, What's the point? none of those none countries of went in. Yeah. Where if the UN was the proper world police, they would have made one of those countries so, intervene. counterpoint. How do we, it, it's it's easy to armchair politicize, armchair politicize, armchair, whatever we want to say. Um, how do we know that any venture into those um, events, scenarios, humanitarian crises would have worked out favorably, period? Because we have examples where we went into countries that there was an oppressive ruling class, a horribly violent ruling class and 20 years later it's still a cluster mm-hmm. we don't have a great track record of you know well, well we, have a, we have a very spotty track record of improving the situation for the people of the countries into which we are going under quote-unquote humanitarian or humanitarian adjacent causes well that's a great example because it's one of those scenarios where it wasn't purely humanitarian there was absolutely alternative motives i know and even when we had even when we had ulterior motives even when we had political economical military even when we had all of these mode all of these incentives to get it right we still made a complete cluster out of it for the people into whose country we were going yeah, but that, why would I don't we think, think we were it, i don't think we had the motivation to help them we had the motivation to get what we wanted and, oh, if we happen to help you along the way, great, but meh. <laughs> and we used the same way that, you know, the explorers did. Mm-hmm. Well, we have bigger guns. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we'll do what we want. Yeah. Yeah. I think I always land on, there are two options. If the United States wants to be world police, you have to police everything. And if the, if the United States does not want to get involved, you cannot get involved in anything. Yeah, so if, if we want to get involved in Iraq, which there were there there were Kurds being massacred with bioterror weapons, which is illegal. Saddam Hussein was committing a war crime. So you can say we're going in there, but we're also going into Myanmar because there is a genocide there. And we're also mm-hmm. going into Sudan. And we're also going into Ethiopia where there's a humanitarian crisis. And we're also going into, you know, the, the Crimean situation we're also you know you have to do all of it yeah, you don't get to or pick you, and choose yeah or you it's cannot fine. do any of it yep. right and those waters even those waters get murky and quite difficult because you have to define what is and isn't a we'll call it a crisis well and that's what the point of the un is is to right. define to define what's a right. crisis we have right. we have the documents 
and the bureaucracy yep. to say what is and isn't allowed. Check the mm-hmm. box, and if yeah. if we reach the, the threshold, send. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it works. No, and even even if that were to be actively used, I mean, we're running into issues of people being greedy bastards. Sure. Um, you know, you can make documents and bureaucracy do and say whatever you want. And so it's, I think that's where I, why I err more on the side of not really isolationism, but um, definitely pulling our sticky fingers out of a lot of stuff because we have historically not, and I, I want to separate the idea of Americans versus our leadership. Cause I think that's an incredibly incredibly salient point that we're, we conflate them both. And that's where I think a lot of this rhetoric of like, you're teaching our kids to hate America comes from is because we're not good at separating the actions of America done by arguably by our leaders. There's under the order of uh, our leaders. Sure. Yeah. There's some murkiness in the whole, like we're a demo, uh, representative democracy. Sure. But you know, there was no vote taken to go into the Afghanistan war nah. by the people. Oh yeah. No. Sorry. There was by Congress and arguably we Which elect Congress them, represents the people. Ostensibly. They're supposed to Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's what we're starting to see more is that divide between the American people and the representative therein. Right. And you know? so like we have and there's been accusations of it for for decades. And I think that's a lot of where, you know, a lot of these conspiracy theories come from the, you know, leadership just out to get it from themselves almost gets it right, except then they veer off into Illuminati drinking children's blood, etc. Which if you don't think that people are always out for what it, how it benefits them, mm-hmm. you're lying to yourself. Absolutely. Yes. The almighty dollar. I have some interesting thoughts on this as in the realms didn't of Didn't we have an altruism religion, episode? We did. Yes. And, and uh, we, we came to the conclusion it didn't exist. Ish. You came to that conclusion. <laughs> I had a very different stood by point. that conclusion. <laughs> are we going to the Stanford prison experiment? <laughs> is, is man good or evil? Yeah. not. Oh, God. Um, but, yeah, it's... That's why... and tend to err more on the side of isolationism is because I I don't trust us as as a nation uh, led by leaders and not even necessarily our current leadership. I mean, just people there's uh, that's a, that creates a really sticky situation though, because we have this record of intervention, but also interventionist rhetoric and an interventionist yes. presence and so if we all of a sudden go Switzerland, you're 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 damned if you do, damned if you don't. Power oh, exactly. vacuum. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're, and, we're and the next, totally and, and screwing the, people over if we... Well, and you can already see out. this happening with China's Belt and Road Initiative. You know, and you, we can argue the merits of that, whatever. But you, there there are two superpowers in this on this planet, United States and China. Where one is not operating, the other will. Because that's how spheres of influence work. Yep. And so there's a new facet to whether to the question, whether or not we should get involved in these various, you know, well, it's a question of should we, it's a question of we have to, I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. See? More, potentially more a question of how, how, how? do we yeah. relate to them in an act, in a more active sense? I think we just divide the earth in half, half, Goes to China, half goes to America. <laughs> didn't we do that? Like, didn't the didn't the England yeah. do that with the British Empire? Yeah, it it didn't really yeah work that well. worked out worked out fine. super yeah. well. Yeah. 
Didn't we fix that problem? Yeah, totally. Just we all split up countries randomly, and it's fine. That never caused any problems. We did that with Russia, too. We literally drew a line through other countries. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, this side's well, ours, this how, side's yours. That's how the United Kingdom divided up the Middle East. And, and and how Europe divided up Africa. That didn't cause any problems. Yeah, not at all. Never. We don't see any of those issues. So, anyways, getting back to the topic of exceptionalism in America... We, we've definitely seen a lot of these consequences. You know, the idea that we have become the world police kind of de facto, if not in charter. We often feel like, and not, we as a people, not necessarily as much, but we as an actor have been able to kind of masquerade with this exceptionalism and create this idea that we're above the law. We have reached into... Or we make the law so, and therefore... Well, yeah, exactly. And we've reached into so many other countries... Operation, uh, operations, whether you know it's in South America and all the puppet governments that the United States, again, the, we'll call it the leadership of the United States because it's a little bit amorphous there, uh, has set up and caused a lot, a lot of harm. Like the, you know, the counterpoint of like, oh, communism's bad. Look at just Venezuela. Venezuela's in its position because we screwed it up. Agreed. I lot. mean, the counterpoint to that is look at Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We did not win that war, no, and Vietnam's not. not doing too bad. Well, it depends on who All you things considered. Ask, but yeah, well, as a whole, yeah, I no nation's going to be completely spotless. Well, yeah, and the, the whole winning the Vietnam War thing either. Uh, but you know, we constantly see that there's a people who would, yeah, we totally won the Vietnam War. No, no, uh, <laughs> no, that's hilarious. No, I don't even know how you argue that. It, with the American facts exceptionalism. With yeah, facts you make up? Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, with know, the, the TV white... show MASH. Right. Yes. In the TV show MASH, they won. We right. won. We well, got MASH that, out of it. That we did? Hey, we won. <laughs> that points me to the next the next consequence of like, you know, we this it becomes very easy to wash away the blemishes of history when we have this idea that America is somehow exceptional or effectively it turns into America can do no wrong. Just which is, like an honor student. Right. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Sterilizing immediate american history you end up that's that spreads a lot to what we've done around the world and i i but i think it's well tell we keep people on our side right if people actually knew the the travesties of america i don't think they like us quite as much oh i think a lot of people do know those travesties that the united states is the bad guy of world history oh yeah are we we got handed the title by the british because they were the bad guys of history before us and there's a long list we kind of held of, on to it like a baton for a while, arguably. Yeah. It's a bat that you beat down the little guy with. Yes. Yep. And then you hope to find someone else to hand it off to and go, oh, this is yours mm-hmm. now. Yeah. yeah. No, I, sorry. What I meant is we held on to it with Britain for oh, a yeah. while. See, I don't think it's, I don't think that it can be that black and white. Oh, it's not. But that's the fun part about it. It's not. It's murky. It. And I think that's, that's again why we're seeing this big push in, you know, realms of education of like we can't teach about things that cast america in a bad light crt our world our actions in the world theater etc right um because we have this tendency to try and make everything black and white if you say that america did something bad then that means that you hate america and you're teaching our kids that america is evil right somehow the communists will take over (laughs) um Communists win. It's usually how that argument I'm just tends waiting to flow. for the communist not hordes. Even communists right now. No, there really aren't. Not in the way we try used to arguing think about that it. with 
either of our sets of grandparents. Like, uh, yeah. I don't want to. Uh huh. I don't want to. <laughs> Speaking of wanting to drink, my grandparents are Baptist, so they wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't drink or wouldn't argue that? Both. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't argue, nor would they drink. Yeah. Sounds like I win that argument. Uh, yeah. And not even going to touch it. <laughs> I guess kind of, you know, airing towards a close of this episode, um, you know, I think all four of us agree that exceptionalism is pretty bad. If we're taking the view that exceptionalism is only, is looking through a lens that America is somehow better than, or at worst cases and probably more common cases, America can do no wrong. Where is the balance, though? Can nationalism, patriotism be a good thing? I think patriotism can, because if you... Patriotism, yes. Nationalism is very much more problematic. How are you splitting those up? So patriotism, I think, is wanting the ideals of your country realized and working towards those ideals in a socially responsible way. So unification. Yeah. So if if you say, you know, I prefer to buy products that are made in America, that's fine. I don't see any, in fact, I think that's a good thing because you're supporting maybe indirectly, you're at least trying to support your fellow country people. Sure. You know, um, I, I think not wanting to send, you know, troops off some foreign land for something we had no business being in the first place Mm -hmm. is, is patriotic. I think holding politicians of both stripes accountable to, you know, a higher standard is patriotic because you want to lift, like I said, the ideals of the country up to realize them on a world stage so that we do start to look more like, you know, I don't want to say the global good guy, but so we can say, you know what, we, we did some really terrible things in the past, but we want to get better. We want to, you know, uh, become what we've said we are. Yeah, you want to look like who we think we are. Nationalism is just we're, we're right. You. Period. Yeah. yeah. Almost a might makes right type. Sure. And, and it goes back to the, you know, it goes back to the that saying, which is actually misquoted, uh, my country right or wrong. There's more to that quote that really changes the meaning of those few words, but I think that's the difference between nationalism and patriotism. Nationalism being like, nope inflicting America's will everywhere because we're right. You're we're on a mission from God, you know, whereas patriotism I think is more genuflective and wanting to improve Mm -hmm. itself. So arguably nationalism and exceptionalism are, I think they go very much the same. Yeah. Or at least the, the circles of the Venn diagram are almost concentric. Yeah. I think that you get a lot of overlap. I think you can't have nationalism without exceptionalism. Okay. You might be able to have exceptionalism without nationalism, but it would be hard. Interesting. It wouldn't be American exceptionalism. Yeah. Right. Sure. Because you can have exceptionalism of like your faith or, you know, your gender or your socioeconomic status. Now, yeah. And see, this is the tricky thing because I think, and I know we're, we're going over whatever. I think that there are things that we do better than other countries. Sure. It's not necessarily, and it's you not, know, and so in some ways, yeah, we do we do some things better than other. It's like I just said. Sorry, I'm repeating myself. I don't think it's everything though. Oh yeah, and so so in your definitions, patriotism says we do this one thing better. Let me show you, and build you up. And nationalism says we do it better. You do it like us now or die. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think that's yeah. that's pretty accurate. And yeah, that's a pretty good kind of split in between the both because it's you know those those two firm terms are very easy to conflate uh, patriotism and nationalism but it gets i mean it gets really tricky in practice though like mm-hmm. if you look at what's happening in afghanistan now we were there for what 20 years basically mm-hmm. in a country that has existed since antiquity and has been in its former and present state i guess not immediate former but whatever it has been you know, it's its own thing for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. It's like, what did we think we were going to accomplish? Yeah. Right. You know? Well, and we have to ask the question, what did we, the populace of America, think we were going to accomplish versus the powers that be? What, what did our leaders think they were going to accomplish? Sure. Especially with how many people that have invaded Afghanistan and lost. You'd think <laughs> that the world would learn. Yeah. Never get involved in a land war in Asia? No. What? Hmm. It's Eurasia, which well, counts sorry, as Afghanistan. Same thing. No, it's my Asia. Oh boy. Sorry. I think I think one of the the ways we can distinguish the two is to focus on culture. And I will always go back to culture is one of the most important things. If you have pride in the American culture, uh, I personally don't um but if you really love hamburgers and fair food, and football games, <laughs> and painting your face, and, and deep frying everything, and deep frying mm. everything, and cowboy hats and bald eagle screeches. More power to you. And I think if you want to share that food, um, and share that music and line dancing and stuff with other cultures, I think it becomes dangerous when you're not accepting what they share back. Yeah. Right. Because if you it say our food is the best. And you're not willing to try Mexican food because you think it's inferior because of who brought it to the table, you have a problem. Right. Yeah. yeah. Even if, you know, taking taking cuisine just as you know, a slice out of this pie for a second, like even if you bring, you know, a burger to potluck or whatever and you don't try the other things because you're you know you don't enjoy them or whatever, that's something very different than again saying that our food is somehow superior. Uh, it might you might like it more, but that doesn't mean that it's superior. And I think we can take that and apply it to the broader scope of how we deal with you know this idea of patriotism versus nationalism. I like some of the ways I should say that America operates. I've certainly benefited from a lot of the way that America oh, operates, yeah. even if I don't necessarily like the um, the sources of it. But that doesn't mean that it's the only way to operate. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know, white nationalism and all of the benefits that we had out of putting down other races or genders is somehow better. I would argue that it's worse. We just happen, especially I being a cis white male, happen to have benefited quite a lot. And so you're right. I think it it ultimately comes down to, you know, I I like my country. Let me share some of these ideas with you. But if somebody, either A, if somebody tries to share back with you and you're like, no, you're dumb versus right. actually talking through it or um, force it, you're you're forcing whatever your thing is, culture, whatever, onto them, that's where we begin to have an issue. And then, of course, there's all of the tough questions of like, well, there's a genocide and what do you do about that? Hopefully, we've been, we've been arguing that it. for hundreds of years. Yeah. But in practicality, every time 
that the U.S. has gone in to quote-unquote save people, <laughs> it's been kind of a side effect rather than the, the, the saving the real people goal. is a side effect? Yes. Yeah. Or a optional goal. I should a say. bonus. I, I think it's, it's perk. It's a publicity point. Yes. Yep. It gets the people behind you. Yeah. Gets so, the people going. That's a pretty cynical note to end on. Love it. Well, Let's go. I don't want to necessarily end on that note, but um, you know, what are what are some of the things that y'all think that we should be doing instead? I mean, I I would in what argue context? in the context of like American exceptionalism, nationalism, patriotism. Um, you know, there is. It seems. There's an argument presented before us of either you can only teach the good things about America or you hate America. I would argue that you cannot love something without accepting that there are flaws in that thing, admitting them. You haven't been on Facebook. <laughs> I have, unfortunately. <laughs> Why I have some scotch. No, I, I completely agree with that. In order to, to actually like something, to love something, I, I feel you have to understand it in its entirety, not blindly... You know, that's why I follow something. But no, I, I have to. I, I like the idea of closing on a very cynical note because it's kind of a cynical topic. <laughs> I suppose. I don't like ending on a hopeless note like that, though. Wait I think, till you get later in the season. <laughs> I I agree with you both in the sense that, and and we can really frame this in the terms of teaching history because that's how we teach American culture, really. In that, you should teach all of it from multiple angles at the same time. And without a bias in the rhetoric of that pedagogy, meaning don't say the 1619 project is morally superior to anything else. Don't say that, you know, X, Y, Z is morally superior. Don't just try to leave. And it, I know it's hard because we're human. Mm -hmm. If you try to leave moral superiority out of those, you know, supposed curricula, I think you've got a better chance because then you're laying it all on the table and saying, this is exactly what happened. Do with that what you will. I, I had a German history class at uh, Eastern Washington University, and you had to have three credits of German to take it because a lot of the stuff that we were reading and presenting on was in German. So there were two professors, one a, a history department and one linguistics department that spoke German. And I think the way they covered the Holocaust is how we should cover all of American history. You you read what the people through it were saying on both sides. Read a Hitler speech. Read what Himmler and Goebbels were saying. Mm -hmm. But also read the pamphlet of the people trying to inspire hope. Read FDR's speech as he talked about it. Read Churchill. Read, you know, all of these people that were speaking on their motives and what they wanted you to think their motives were. Mm -hmm. Because if you can see that full picture, then you can start to see history as if it was more modern. You know, we look at history um, through the past lens, and so we miss a lot of the human aspect. And I think if we look at it like it is current news, where there's two sides, and we're still deciding which way to go, and everyone has an opinion, and everyone's some right and some wrong, then we can get a full picture of what history is and what was actually happening back then. Because Hitler came to power for a reason. People sided with him for a reason, mm -hmm. and people didn't start you know, fighting against him f until 1941 for a reason. 
And so if you can get into all of that, like slavery was started for a reason. They did everything. They established plantations. They picked the crops. They decided where to pull slaves from in Africa. They, you know, all of that stuff was was chosen and there was thought behind that. And I think if we teach all of that, it's not so much a, you know, oh, America did some slavery, but don't worry, we also <laughs> fought ourselves to free the slaves. So the only thing you should focus on is that we freed the slaves and Except we're the heroes that we didn't again. We fight ourselves to free the slaves. We fight ourselves for states rights. States rights, yeah. <laughs> the right God. to have slaves though. Yeah. Oh. I think then you can say you know, they're, they're flawed people just like us. Like Abraham Lincoln said some great things, but some messed up things. And he had some bad views and he had some good views because he didn't have a full context of history. And so humanizing them and looking at history as a, you know, a full line of events by human people, uh, it helps avoid that a lot. I think so. Slightly less cynical note. Yeah, awesome. I like it. Let's end on that. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, Forrest. Yeah, you're welcome. It's good to have you on. Thanks for um, having me. Yeah, for sure. Long, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, waiting for that joke. Oh my gosh. Well, folks, this has been Scotch and Socialism. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Please find us on our website, scotchandsocialism.com. Also on social media, Scotch Socialism, no and in those handles, on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, please leave a comment, like, and follow. Do all those podcasting things, and remember to drink and listen responsibly.